for your invitation and having me to come this weekend and speak to you on the subject of the Reformed faith and its perspectives. I've enjoyed getting to know you, and I hope that uh, the time has been as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. This afternoon in our worship, we turn for our scripture reading to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, his first epistle, chapter 2. Hear now the word of God. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We speak wisdom, however, among them that are full-grown, yet a wisdom not of this world, nor of the rulers of this world, who are coming to nothing. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, even the wisdom that hath been hidden, which God foreordained before the worlds unto our glory, which none of the rulers of this world hath known. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, things which eye saw not and ear heard not, and which entered not into the heart of man, Whatsoever things God prepared for them that love him. But unto us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For who among men knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God none knoweth, save the Spirit of God. But we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that were freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, and he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would give us, because we have such respect for you, such reverence for you, we pray that you would give us a respect and reverence for your holy word as well. We pray that you would help us to appreciate the great gift that you have delivered to us in speaking to us in the words of the Holy Scriptures. We pray that you would give us an obedient spirit as we hear you speak to us and direct us and guide us in your book. We do pray that you would help us to better represent your claims to men, that we might better understand the place of the Scriptures in our holy faith, that we might represent faithfully who you are and show men why they should believe the things that we do. We do ask that you would correct us where we have not read your holy word properly. We ask that you would guide us in the paths of truth, that you would do that for your name's sake, and that we would bring greater glory to you. 
toward that end, bless our time of instruction now in Jesus' name. Amen. During this weekend conference, I have tried to elaborate for you on the four distinctives of the Reformed faith as we have come to know it after the days of the Protestant Reformation. We have talked about the sovereignty of God, a God who is over all, creator of all, the judge of all, a God who predestines the end from the beginning, and for that reason, a God who receives our praise for his grace in our salvation. Secondly, we've seen that God has worked out redemption in history in a covenantal fashion, that he is the God who has made covenant with his people, and that he keeps this covenant. He is a covenant-keeping God. He calls on us to trust him and to obey him, to be his people, even as he is our God. We've seen that there is continuity in this covenant, that it is really one in Old and New Testaments. We have seen that there is continuity in God's moral requirements in Old and New Testaments. We've seen that there's continuity in the people of God in Old and New Testaments. That there is but one people in the Old Testament called Israel, the nation in the New Testament, the Church of Jesus Christ. We have seen, therefore, that this is why we bring our children to be baptized, because we believe in God's covenant, that he works with our families, even as he did with Old Testament Israel. We've seen the sovereignty of God. We've seen the covenant of God. We've also seen how this sovereign, covenant-keeping God would have us to live in the world. We've seen how God governs every area of life and calls on us to serve him in every area of life, believing that this is his world created by him and therefore that the physical domain is good. It is not something to be shunned and that we are to see the Lordship of Jesus Christ come to expression in everything that we do in this physical world, not just in our church services, not just in our private devotions, not just in our family worship, but we are to see the Lord Jesus Christ honored and obeyed in government, in economics, in industry, in education, in athletics, in entertainment, in uh, science, in medicine, in every other area of human concern. We've seen that no man has the right to add to the word of God and bind our consciences, to tyrannize us in our faith, that God alone is the Lord of our conscience because he alone is the sovereign. And then we saw, fourthly, that the Reformed faith has a distinctive view of life in the church as well, that Jesus himself, as head of the church, has ordained a government in the church in the hand of elders, and that these elders are to be plural in number. And they are to have oversight of the church, and people are to swear their allegiance and submission to those that God has put over them. We've seen that the elders are to lead the church in worship, and that worship is not to be according to man's imagination. It's not to be according to the devices of our own hearts, but worship is to be what God himself has taught us to do and nothing else. Because God requires the worship, we may not add to what counts as worship. We may not devise our own little rituals and creative, imaginative ideas for what would make worship more entertaining or better for us. We are to worship as God has shown us, and that worship centers on the Word of God, I taught you. That the edification of God's people with the proclamation of His Word is the center part of Christian worship in a Reformed understanding. And then we finally saw that the sacraments were an important part of the worship of God's people and that the sacraments are to be understood not simply as those things which point to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as tokens or memorials of the work of Christ but the sacraments are as well to be seen as seals upon our hearts 
that they seal upon our hearts the benefits of the covenant of grace. And when the sacraments are improperly administered, they bring curse to God's covenant people. Even as when they are properly administered, they bring blessing to God's people. As Paul says, it's a cup of blessing which we bless, a cup which brings us blessing when we come to the Lord's Supper. And so there we have a distinctive outlook on the Christian life, a distinctive view of God, a distinctive view of the way of redemption, a distinctive view of life in the world, a distinctive view of the church and how it is to be governed and how it is to operate. This is what we call the Reformed faith. Now the natural question before I should leave you, I think, has got to be, so why should I believe all that? Why should I believe? There are so many things you have said, Dr. Bonson, this weekend, which are hard to believe. When you stop and think about it, the Reformed faith is not an easy faith. There are things which are hard to believe first because they're difficult to understand. You notice that I have taught you that God is sovereign. He foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, and yet I said this does not take away man's freedom and responsibility. We genuinely choose to do the things that we do. We are not robots. We are not puppets. And yet a sovereign God has planned out the end from the beginning. Dr. Bonson, that's hard to understand. How can God predestine everything, and yet I am still genuinely free and responsible in what I decide to do? And I suggested to you the other evening that there is no answer that can be offered to you that will satisfy man's rationality. It's not as though what I'm telling you is irrational. What I'm telling you is mysterious. There's a big difference between the two. I don't know how God had the Virgin Mary have a baby. And I don't know how Jesus walked on water. And I don't understand all the intricacies of the mystery of the Trinity. But the Bible teaches these things, and I believe them, and I know that they are not contradictory. Likewise, I don't understand how God predestines my free choices. And yet the Bible says he does, and therefore I believe it. But you see, that's hard for people to accept. Most people want to have an answer that satisfies them, or else they aren't going to go along with it. Of course, anybody who's truly born again, I dare say, accepts mystery as part of his or her Christian faith. You know, it doesn't take very long for you to find something in what they believe that they accept simply on the authority of God speaking it in the Word. Why do they accept blood atonement? Why do they accept substitutionary atonement? Why do they accept the deity of Jesus Christ and these sorts of things? In the end, they will tell you, well, because the Bible tells me so. And that's why I am reformed in my theological outlook. As hard as some of these doctrines are to believe, I hold to them because the Bible tells me so. Not only have I given to you some doctrines which are difficult to understand, but in another sense, some of the things I've taught you this weekend are too good to be true. Or maybe we should say too good to believe. I mean, really, a God who makes this kind of covenant a God who sovereignly takes the initiative to have a relationship with me, a God who is willing to overlook my sin and send his own son to the cross to pay the price of my sin, a God who is faithful and forgiving even when I am faithless toward him, a God who does not expect me in some way to earn the benefit and the blessing that I have as belonging to him, that's just too good to be true. No one could possibly believe that. You know this is, this is strange. I have found it to be the case that when I get in, in environments where I have to defend the Christian faith that uh, people do object to the Christian faith because of the graciousness of its message. I recently was on a radio program where the very offense 
that was presented in, in, in my uh, presentation was that there was no merit in the good works of man and that we must simply accept the grace of God. Some people find that, you know, well, I, it's either a blow to their pride that they have nothing to offer or some people say it just can't be that way. Certainly I've got to do something to save myself. And so here again we present in the Reformed faith truths which are too good to be true are just incredible, unbelievably good things. Now why do we believe them? Because the Bible tells us so. This weekend we've also seen truths which are contrary to our own inclination, contrary to our own desires. I think here, to take just one of many illustrations available, of what I taught you about the government of the church, what I taught you about the idea that we are to voluntarily submit to the elders of the church because we honor the headship of Jesus Christ over his body. Does anyone find that an easy thing to do? Does anyone find that according to your natural inclination? I'm just looking for people who are going to govern me. That's what I want. No, as sinful, rebellious individuals, we like to live unto ourselves. We want to be a law to ourselves. And even when we acknowledge that there is a law of God out there that governs us, I don't want anybody to stand between that law and me. I want to make my own decisions. And if I fall short of that, I don't want anyone coming to tell me so. I don't want to be disciplined. That's a hard thing to do. So why do I teach a Presbyterian form of government when I see that it's not really popular in our day? Why do I teach that worship is not to be entertaining first and foremost, that worship is supposed to be faithful to God? Why do we teach these things? Because the Bible tells us so. You see how important then the Scriptures are to the Reformed faith? If we did not have the view of Scripture that we do, I dare say we would not have our view of God as sovereign. We would not have our view of God as covenantal in his redemptive work in history. We would not view life in the world in the way that we do. We would not view life in the church in the way that we do. All these distinctives of the Reformed faith all come down to and depend upon our fundamental conviction about the Word of God. Why do we believe things that are hard to believe, difficult to understand, too good to be true, contrary to our inclination and desire? We believe them because of the authority of God's word. Paul says in Romans, the third chapter, verse 4, Let God be true, though all men are liars. Well, I'll tell you, Paul did not learn that by going to the popular schools of philosophy in his day. Paul did not learn that because he had gone to the schools of public relations and found out how to please people. Paul didn't learn that kind of theology, you see, from men at all. Paul says something that, in a sense, is very, very insulting to man and his pride. Paul says if every single person on earth were lined up and said something contrary to what God has said, I would say they're all liars. Wow. You mean, Paul, you wouldn't stop even for a moment to think that maybe the Bible could be wrong or what God has said? He says, let all men be, be accounted as liars and confess that God is true. Let God be true, though all men have to be accounted as liars. And so you see the authority of God's Word. But it's not simply the authority of God's Word that I'd like to present to you this afternoon. It's also the great privilege of having God's Word. If you stop and think about it, as difficult as it is for human pride to bow to God speaking and say, whatever you say, Lord, is true, if we didn't have a word from God that commanded that kind of submission of the heart and mind, just think of the darkness in which we would live 
Just think of the confusion we would have. Just think how lonely and how lost we would be in terms of our thinking. Who among men has the right to tell us what God is like? Who really can speak for God? Now, you can see what happens when people out in the world attempt to do that. They all get together and they find their common view of God. Isn't that right? Everybody has this natural understanding of God and they just agree automatically with that. Is that right? Of course not. If you do any study of this, as I've tried to make it part of my ministry to do, you know very well that there are thousands of views of God and all these different variations and all these different religions and all these different philosophies. Now, where would you stand if God said, now, I'm going to be very quiet. I'm not going to tell you anything about myself. You see if you can figure it out. You see if you can find me on your own. You see if you can understand what human life is all about and where this world came from and what the meaning of human life is and how you should live your life and what your hope is to stand before me. You see if you can figure it out. Would you be able to do that? You'd be lost, wouldn't you? And we see all about us people stumbling in darkness because they do not go to God's own word. By the way, those who do attempt to come up with a system of thought that they say tells us about God or what God would require of us do great insult to God because they presume that they could speak for God. Who has the right to do that? Do you think God is pleased when we make God into our own image? Is that really what a sovereign creator God would expect of his people? Now you go make up in your own thinking what I'll be like and what I want of you and what the terms of our relationship will be. Of course not. And men stumble in darkness and they insult the Almighty. And in their pride they come up with all these different points of view and they cannot reconcile them. You notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I trust it will be one of yours as well. David says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. Thy word is light unto my path. Where is David if he doesn't have the word of God? In darkness. Stumbling along. Not able to follow the path that he should. Not thinking God's thoughts after him. Not knowing God as he should. Not believing the right things, not doing the right things. David says, but your word, Lord, is the lamp that guides my feet. So we praise God for the privilege of walking in the light. We thank God that he has not been silent. If nothing else, the Reformed faith is that religious faith that declares God has not been silent. God has not left us unto our own. God has not left us in the darkness and in the confusion and in the contradiction of human thinking. God has rather shown us the way. The Reformed faith is a faith that centers on the light of God's Word. We see the authority of God's Word. Let God be true, though all men are liars. We see the privilege of God's Word. Thy Word is a light unto my path. Thirdly, we need to as Reformed believers, acquire a Berean spirit about ourselves. You know what I mean by a Berean spirit? Have you read the book of Acts? You know who the Bereans were? Turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, just so I can remind you of these noble Christians in the city of Berea, commended by the Apostle Paul himself. In Acts 17, verse 11, we read, Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
Uh, those in Thessalonica had run Paul out of town, had been very violent in rejecting the Word of God. But in Berea, it was different. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind, examining the Scriptures daily, whether these things were so. These were Reformed Christians, these Bereans, because their spirit was one of examining the Scriptures to see if these things were so. You see, it is the heart and soul of the Reformed faith to consider every doctrinal issue, every controversy of religion in light of the teaching of God's Word. We should be people who daily read our Bibles, daily examine our theology according to the holy standard of God's Word. We are people who do not believe things because it sounds good or believe things because we can rationally figure them out. We are people who go to the Bible to see if the Bible tells us so. We are Bereans. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle John tells us why we must have that Berean spirit. 1 John 4, the first verse, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear, every teaching, every dogma, hypothesis. Don't believe every spirit, but prove the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The Reformed faith is realistic about the challenge of unbelief and false teaching all about us. The Reformed faith says it isn't enough to have this gooey feeling about somebody that, oh, they're really nice or they're really gentle or they're really entertaining or whatever it may be. The Bible says prove the spirits because false prophets, false teachers have gone out into the world. In verse 2, we read, Hereby we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not Jesus is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it comes, and now it is in the world already. That is to say, we are to compare every dogma, every doctrine, every opinion of man, every religious hypothesis according to the teaching of the apostles themselves. If someone does not teach as the apostles did, then that is of Antichrist. Reject it. Avoid it. Be careful of that. Here's how careful you must be. In Galatians, the first chapter, verse 9, the Apostle Paul speaks candidly of those who teach a gospel other than that which the apostles themselves have presented. Paul says, As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preaches unto you any gospel other than that which you received, let him be anathema. One of the strongest expressions available to the apostle in the Greek language. Let him be accursed of God and cast off. Let him be anathema. If he dare teaches you some other variation in theology, some other human opinion that is not the gospel that we presented, we need to have a Berean spirit, which is to say a discerning spirit because of our view of God's word. It is important that we bow before the authority of Scripture. Let God be true, though all men are liars. It is important that we thank God for the privilege of walking in the light and not stumbling in darkness. It is important that we have a discerning spirit that tries the spirits and the opinions and the hypotheses of men 
to see daily according to the scripture whether they are so. To be sure, we don't come under the anathema of the Apostle Paul and follow a gospel that is not truly gospel, follow a teaching that is not that which the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ have delivered to us. Now this is a reformed view of God's word. I'd like to read for you just to uh, substantiate these points in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, which is on the Holy Scripture. The first chapter of the Confession deals with Holy Scripture. Now, why do you think that is? Because, you see, it's only on the basis of what Scripture says that we have any right to believe the rest of what's in the Confession. If we don't have that foundation in our theory of knowledge, if that is not the authority or basis for our beliefs, and you could put in here just about anything you want. If chapter 1, conceptually speaking, I mean, you could have chapter 3 be the one on Scripture, but if in terms of your logic, in terms of the, the uh, system of thought that you have, if Scripture is not foundational, then the rest of the chapters might as well be blank pages and you can write what you want there. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us, and I don't have time to expound the whole chapter, it's really beautiful, you ought to read it on your own, uh, but I would like to rehearse for you just three sections of it quickly. First, section four tells us this, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Why are we to receive the scriptures? Because they are the word of God. We don't receive them because the Roman Catholic Church tells us they are the word of God. We don't receive it based on the testimony of any man or church. We don't receive the scriptures just because our parents tell us to. We don't receive the scriptures just because some friend or some respected teacher tells us to. The Confession says we receive the Scriptures as having authority because they are the very Word of God. And so the supreme authority of Scripture is seen. In section 6 of the Confession, we read these words. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Do you hear that? The Scripture is not only authoritative in itself, but it is sufficient in itself. Everything we need to know concerning God's glory Man's salvation, man's faith, and man's life is found in the Bible either expressly or by deduction. And that's why no one has the right to add anything to the Bible. And notice the two illustrations that are given. Nothing is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. For you see, the Reformers here were dealing on the one hand, even as we do today, with two excesses among those who profess the name of Jesus Christ, claim to be Christians. One, those who believe that there are charismatic revelations today through tongues and prophecy. And the confession says nothing is to be added to Scripture. As it has been given to us in the pages of the Old and New Testaments, it is sufficient 
for everything we need to know God and to live in His world and to be His people. There is no need for further revelation of the Spirit. And nothing is to be added to the Scriptures based on the traditions of men. They're referring to the Roman Catholic Church and the dogmas that are promulgated under the authority of the Pope, the Roman Pontiff. And the Reformers said, Scripture and Scripture alone, not charismatic revelations, not papal decrees, but God's Word. And then section 10 tells us in chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. The authority of this word is the authority of the Holy Spirit, notice. But it's not the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking in my private conscience, or the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking in some charismatic church service, or the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Roman pontiff. But it's the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures. And that is the supreme judge of all religious controversy, and in whose judgment we are to rest. Sadly, sometimes... When we see what the Bible teaches us, we say, well, yeah, that is what the Bible teaches, but we don't take a lot of confidence from that. We don't rest in it. We want something else to come along to bolster support or give us reassurance about that. But the Confession says Scripture is the highest authority. Scripture determines all controversies of faith and dogma, and Scripture's judgment is sufficient to not only provide for our lives, but to give us rest and confidence in what it says. And that's why the Reformed faith is sometimes known for proof texting. Can I say just a word about that this afternoon? Especially because proof texting is so ridiculed in our day and age, especially in theological circles, even in seminary circles. Sometimes when I get into debates with people over points of doctrine and I go to the Bible and try to give them verses for that, they say, oh, well, you're just proof texting. And you know what I say to people who talk that way? I say, you're absolutely right. I'm proof texting. And what do you have as an alternative? The reason why we go to verses of the Bible to prove the particular points of our belief as Reformed people is because we think the Scripture and the Scripture alone is to be our final authority. And if something cannot be demonstrated in the Bible, then it is not to be believed. And if it can be demonstrated in the Bible, one dare not disbelieve it. Now, what is the alternative to proof texting? Well, I suppose it's either to go somewhere else besides the Bible for what you believe, or to say the Bible is your foundation in some very broad, abstract, and vague way. That you read the Bible and you get this general feeling about what God would have you to think about Him or how you should live in this world. And they are not adequate to account for the authority of God's Word as we have seen it this afternoon. I'd like to give you just one illustration of that. In Galatians, the third chapter, the Apostle Paul seeks to prove a point of doctrine and he quotes an Old Testament verse from the book of Genesis. There, Paul says, in making his point, that when God promised to Abraham certain things, he promised to Abraham and to his seed. And Paul then says, he doesn't say to seeds as plural, but rather to his seed singularly. Now, in the English... 
The difference between seed and seeds is one letter. In the Greek, the difference is, it's, it's not as easy as in English, but it is also the difference of one letter. You change two ultimately, but you get one new letter. And what happens then is that the Apostle Paul is willing to rest a crucial point of theological truth in debate with his opponents upon one letter of the Old Testament. What did Jesus say in Matthew, the fifth chapter? That he came not to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them till heaven and earth passes away. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away until heaven and earth himself pass away. A jot or a tittle? Jesus was that concerned with the authority of Scripture? He absolutely was. A jot represents the Hebrew letter Yoda. Yod, the smallest letter the Hebrew alphabet. But Jesus goes beyond just that small letter. He speaks of the tittle. In Hebrew, there are letters which are distinguished from one another simply by the extension past a line. Oh, just the littlest little tittle of an extension. Tells you the difference, for instance, between D and R in Hebrew. And Jesus says, not the smallest part of a letter shall pass away. It is not sufficient for us to have some other authority than the text of God's word for our theology. And it is not sufficient for us to say, just in some general, broad, abstract and vague way, this is what I think the Bible teaches. I have this feeling from it. We must get down to the jots and the tittles. We must get down to the seed and the seeds. We must understand very precisely what God has said. And so, yes, the Reformed faith is characterized by proof texting. We go to text to prove our points. Now, that is not to say that all proof texting is legitimate. It's not to say that everybody who claims a verse in support of his or her opinion has properly interpreted the verse. It's not to say that context has not been forgotten and that verses haven't been abused. Well, that's all true. But that, the fact that we make mistakes in going to the text and that we don't do justice to the context and other sorts of things does not mean that we should prove our theological points other than by proof texting. Now, how would you feel if I pointed out to you that doctors have sometimes prescribed the wrong kind of medicine for people? Doctors sometimes have given too strong a dosage or too weak a dosage or given the wrong medicine. How would you like it if I pointed out to you that pharmacists have sometimes given the wrong prescription to a patient? Do you know that happens? We praise the Lord, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Now, what if someone were to say, well, since mistakes are made with prescription drugs, we might as well take poison. That'd be absurd, wouldn't it? And yes, it's sad that mistakes are made with proof texting, but that doesn't mean we should find some other way to settle our theological differences than by going to the Word of God and the text of God's Word to prove our points. According to a Reformed view of God's Word, we need to see the necessity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and the inerrancy of Scripture. Maybe a word about each of those before we are finished with our lesson this afternoon. The Reformed view of God's Word teaches, first of all, that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are necessary. Why are they necessary? Well, one, because when we see the revelation of God in nature round about us and consider the revelation of God in our conscience and our heart of hearts, 
Because we are sinners, we distort that. We suppress it in unrighteousness and we don't get it right. We need to be corrected in our reading of the natural world and of our own hearts and what God is showing us about himself there. But more importantly, we need to understand that what God shows us of himself in the natural world and what he has shown of himself in terms of our own ethical conscience does not in any way show us the way of salvation. It only shows us what God requires and therefore our just condemnation. And so scripture is necessary to correct our reading of nature and also to supplement our reading of nature with the way of salvation, God's covenant of grace. Not only is Scripture necessary, but the Reformed confessions teach that Scripture is sufficient for all that we need. I've already shown that to you in the Westminster Confession. I just repeat it here in passing by way of summary. The Scripture is necessary, but it's also sufficient. We don't need anything more than Scripture. We do not need a pope. We do not need the decrees of councils. We do not need some kind of charismatic experience of the, script, of, the, of the Spirit. The Scriptures give us all that we need to know of God and to live before Him in a way that pleases Him and that is faithful to Him. Thirdly, the Reformed Confessions teach us that Scripture is clear. There is a clarity or perspicuity to Scripture, as it is sometimes said. The scripture is not somehow so veiled in mystery and so difficult to understand that people just have to throw up their hands and say, well, I can't figure it out. Who knows what God would have me to believe in order to be saved? You know, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that anyone with, as the confession says, the natural use of means, with normal intelligence and the ability to read, anyone can go to the Bible and find in there that Jesus loves me. This I know and find the way of salvation to find out who God is and how he or she should live their lives. The scripture is clear. That isn't to say everything is equally clear, equally easy. There are some difficult things to understand, even as Peter said about Paul's own writings. And so we have to apply ourselves, and we have to be cautious in the use of the scriptures. But having said that, the fact of the matter is, anybody can read in here and see the way of salvation, can see who God is, and why they are sinful, and the Savior that they need. The Scripture is clear. The Scripture is authoritative. We've already touched on that this afternoon. Let God be true, though all men are liars. The Scripture has supreme authority over our thinking, our beliefs, and our behavior. The Scripture is also infallible. It does not fail in what it sets out to do. As the Scripture sets out to reveal to us who God is, or how we should live our lives, it does not tell us untruth. It does not get us into moral error. It accomplishes that which God sends it to do. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Isn't that right? When God's word goes out, it does not return to him void. His word does what his word was intended to do. It is unfailing. It is infallible. And in our day and age, we need to add to that because there are those who think the scripture somehow can be unfailing and yet not tell us the truth when it intends to teach us certain things. We need to say the Bible is unerring as well. It does not make mistakes. It does not teach error. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John the 17th chapter, verse 17, said, Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. What God says is true. He does not lie. He does not make mistakes. He does not overlook things that should have been taken into consideration. He does not change his mind. 
God's word is a word of unchanging truth. This is the reformed understanding of God's word. It is necessary. It is sufficient. It is clear, authoritative, infallible, and unerring. Two slogans come out of the Protestant Reformation about Scripture, which I'd like to leave you with this afternoon. Two slogans which, although they are put in Latin formulation, that's the way we tend to remember them, and I hope you will do so, because they really kind of cover the ground for us. When people want to know what our view of the Bible is, I think we should remind them that according to our Reformation forefathers, we hold to sola scriptura and to tota scriptura. The Latin meaning solely scripture as the foundation of our faith, but totally scripture. All of what scripture has to say. We hold to sola scriptura because as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but only in the wisdom and the power of God. And that wisdom that is the foundation for our faith cannot be found among the rulers of this world, for if it were, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This wisdom cannot be found in the philosophical schools of men. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul has said that the wisdom of this world is made foolish by God. For in the wisdom of this world, God's word is rejected. And so, the Protestant Reformation was based upon the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and the attitude of sola scriptura. It is not what the Pope says that is important, but solely what scripture itself teaches us. Because our faith stands in God's wisdom and not the wisdom of men. Moreover, the Reformation was founded upon the attitude of tota scriptura. Not only do we go only to Scripture as the foundation of the Christian faith, but we go to all of Scripture as the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus said in Matthew, the fourth chapter, verse 4, man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God does not give us the privilege of the scissors and paste approach to the Bible, that we can cut things out and repaste the book together so that it fits our preconceived ideas. We are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul says in Romans 15.4 that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our instruction. Whatever God has written ahead of time, whatever God has said previously has been written for our instruction. And Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable. All of it. I know you have a hard time believing that when you read the genealogies, but there's a reason for the genealogies. And they serve a purpose that you should find out about. It is hard sometimes to see the value of certain Old Testament laws that we don't understand. It seems so strange to us. But you are obligated to see the prophet that is there and find out how they will form you to be a man of God, thoroughly furnished to every good work. There is profit in every part of the instruction of God's Word. Profit for doctrine, instruction, correction, and also guidance for our righteous living. And so we believe that all Scripture is authoritative for us, not just the parts we like, not just bits and pieces, not just arbitrarily chosen sections, but every bit of it, from cover to cover. Tota Scriptura, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Acts, the 20th chapter, the Apostle Paul, we read, called to him the elders at Miletus. 
and it would be wonderful to expound the entire exhortation given by the Apostle Paul, but I would leave with you this afternoon just these words from verse 27. Paul says, For I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. Why does he say that? Go back to verse 26. Wherefore I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Paul says, I am innocent. I have faithfully discharged my calling as a preacher. I have done what Jesus Christ has called me to do as his servant and declaring his word to men. And I am innocent, therefore, of the blood of all men. And why is Paul innocent of the blood of all men? He says, For I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. I want to end our conference this afternoon by explaining to you why we make such a point of stressing the Reformed faith. It is not because we are of a party spirit in the Reformed churches. And it's kind of like, well, our families and our background and our team, rah, 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 over against everybody else. It's not a matter of, you know, we've got this and you don't have this and we're better than you. We don't insist upon these things because somehow we're nitpickers. Sometimes we just specialize in just little, you know, ticky-tack details that aren't important to the Reformed faith, or to the Christian faith. When we announce the Reformed faith unto men, we do so because with the Apostle Paul we would be free of the blood of all men because we have faithfully discharged our ministry as ministers of the whole counsel of God. You know, it's not a personal offense that I take when I run into someone who says, well, I believe in predestination, isn't that enough? I don't have to worry about the government of the church or covenant theology or this idea of living in the world to God's glory. You see, the offense that is taken there is not my own personal offense. It's offense for the sake of Jesus Christ speaking in the Scriptures. That whole counsel of God cannot be truncated as though we have the right to say, well, that's not really important. We don't take a smorgasbord approach to the Bible those of us who are proclaiming the Reformed faith. We hold to the sovereignty of God and God's covenantal dealings with men. We hold to our obligation to serve Jesus Christ in all walks of life. And we believe that Christ has ordained a particular government and worship in His church. And we believe these things because they are part of the whole counsel of God. And we would not shrink back from declaring all of that counsel to you. There are a lot of complicated things in theology, things that I don't understand, and I've been studying for a number of years, things that I know you struggle with as well. There are a number of details that God calls us to believe and to follow, to obey. But when all is said and done, the reason why we believe and do these things and proclaim the faith as we do is because the Bible tells us so. It all comes back, you know, to that children's hymn. Reformed faith, as sophisticated, as complicated, as deep as it may be, really can be summarized in a sense in that expression. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And that's why we believe these things that I've been teaching you this weekend. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we ask that we might truly bow our knee to you and bow our hearts and minds to you as well in acknowledging your authority over us. Your authority not only over our bodily behavior and attitudes, but your authority over our thinking 
and our beliefs as your people. We readily acknowledge the authority then of your word. We have no right to pretend to portray you in a way that pleases us or according to our preconceptions. But we must bow before you in your self-revelation. You must tell us what you are like and you have done so and we thank you for the great privilege of the light that you've given us so that we wouldn't wander in darkness and stumble along in confusion and in error. How we thank you that you not only have authoritatively shown yourself, but you have given us the great benefit of the light, the revelation of your word. We do ask that you would give to us a true Berean and discerning spirit as your people, that we might daily examine the scriptures to see what things are so, to believe those doctrines which are true to your mind in Revelation, to live according to those standards which truly come from your own mouth. We do ask that you might help us to see the importance today of holding solely to the Scripture, but holding totally to the Scripture. We pray that you would teach us how important it is to be willing and able to prove our doctrines by the text of your Word that we might see how necessary and sufficient that word is and not fall back from it as though it were unclear or unauthoritative or somehow failing in its intent. We pray that you would give us in this a great and childlike faith that we can trust your word and believe whatever is taught therein, that we might be able to say truly we believe these things because the Bible tells us so. We pray in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.